It's the 17th of September, 2021. This is the Room Now Podcast, and I'm Dr. Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com. COVID numbers, are they assuring or not so assuring? And the benefits of masking. Smartphones and diets. It was only a matter of time before we get around to that. And the important question in this week's podcast, do more drugs mean more switching, less persistence, patient adherence? Does it go up or down? We're going to discuss that and more. But first, a word from our sponsor. Patient characteristics may inform your treatment approach with specific patient populations. A biomarker-driven study with precisely defined inclusion criteria looked at Arencia, Abitacept, and a TNF inhibitor. Don't treat in the dark. Visit ArenciaData.com. But first, let's begin with a meta-analysis regarding alopecia areata. I treat alopecia areata usually as an accompaniment to autoimmune disorders. And I also treat patients who've had alopecia universalis, very severe. Why do they come to me? I'm not a dermatologist, but I've got the drugs that seem to manage here, manage well here, and that is the JAK inhibitors. So we have recently reported on the control clinical trials in baricitinib, 110 patients. It ended up looking good. The primary outcome measure there is a SALT50 response rate. Recent publication just came out about a meta-analysis, 12 studies, 346 patients with alopecia areata. These studies were uh, done in patients receiving either tofacitinib or ruxolotinib, the other JAK inhibitor that's used for hematologic indications like myelofibrosis. Um, and when they used these in patients with alopecia areata, the success rate was good. The SOL50 response rate was 66%, as high as like 72%. Turns out it didn't matter uh, if the patient was old, male, female, young. Um, it seemed to work uh, in all groups and also in all different subtypes of alopecia. So I think that's important. Um, this particular report, Dermatology Journal, was sort of focused on um, a moderate maybe higher than what they're used to, amount of side effects and risk of infection. But I thought the telltale um, take-home message was if you stop the JAK inhibitor, well, then the alopecia areata recurs within three months in three quarters of patients. And that's kind of mirrors my experience when I've used these drugs and had to stop them for pregnancy or insurance wouldn't cover it. Yeah, it was about two months, three months before their skin got worse. Speaking of skin, let's go to herpes zoster. I found this a very bothersome report. It's about the risk of zoster in adults who are taking our drugs, biologics, DMARDs, even cytoxan and other cytotoxics. It's a sort of a, a, a large population-based study, 200 plus thousand patients, a 1.8 million patient years of follow-up. There's a lot of patients, a lot of years, a lot of drugs. The, the risk of developing zoster was higher in patients who were taking biologic DMARDs and cytoxan. I think I can kind of expect that. I previously reported that even TNF inhibitors are higher. We know JAK inhibitors are the highest. Cytoxan is not far behind. Um, we know that they probably anaphrolamide will be high because it inhibits alpha interferon. But in this report, they actually earmarked azathioprine and hydroxychloroquine like a 20 to 50% higher risk of zoster if you're on those drugs. 
What's up with that? I wouldn't have said, said that was the case. They said not an increased risk with monotherapy uh, use of methotrexate, sulfazalazine, or leflunamide. So big numbers. Why is it thioprene hydroxychloroquine? Is that because they're in combination, reflecting the difficulty of the patient? It's really the patient. Does, I don't really know, but I found those numbers on this, indica- this uh, take-home message a little bothersome. But the data is the data, and you've got to live with that and, um, and be aware of that. MMWR reported about the risk of uh, what's going on right now during the Delta variant era. Um, If you've been vaccinated against COVID-19 in this era, you have a five-fold reduced risk of COVID infection. You've got a tenfold reduced risk of um, uh, COVID hospitalization and a tenfold reduced risk of COVID death. Meaning that if you're not vaccinated, then those things are five and 10 times higher. Another interesting report uh, from MMWR also came out, a study of 265 students who were COVID test positive and they looked at their contacts. This is a contract tracing study of 378 close contacts and they showed what the infection rates were like amongst those close contacts if they were, va- if they were not vaccinated, but if they were wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. So it turns out that the positive patient was wearing a mask and the close contact was wearing a mask. The risk of future COVID infection was 7.7%. But when masks were not used, the risk rose fivefold higher to a rate of 32%. So those of, you know, you have to, who have to deal with the naysayers who say masking doesn't really work. It's a, it's a pipe dream. Well, there is a lot of good data that comes up looking just like this. So masking reduces risk fivefold, or being unmasked increases your risk of infection fivefold. Um, and then I thought this was really interesting from a GI journal, uh, the effect of diet on COVID outcomes. Well, they have a sort of interesting study. It's a really large smartphone study of like a bazillion people on smartphones. Uh, and in this large cohort, um, there were three, 31,000 people who developed covid And in this smartphone study, they were measuring a lot of things, including diets. Uh, And they quantified diet and its healthiness and uh, its quality in several different ways. But the bottom line is that when you had a poor diet, when you were in the lowest quartile of the diet scores, you had a, um, 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 I'm sorry, a lowest quartile was actually the better diet. You had a 9% lower risk of developing COVID in the future. But more importantly, if you had a healthier diet, good diet quality, look at the paper to figure out what that is, you had a 41% lower risk of developing severe COVID. So there are a number of people out there who feel that they're protected because they're healthy uh, and that they are um, uh, they're very healthy in their diet and in their lifestyle. Um, kudos to them. I think that they are protecting themselves. I think it's one of many ways we can protect ourselves and advise our patients to protect themselves. Um, another really interesting study about COVID this week, probenicid, you know, and, and again, uh, um, the urate-lowering drug probenicid, not used very much. It works as be, by being an O3 inhibitor and its effects on the tub- tubules. It's been shown in um, animal models to um, do several things. It inhibits RNA viruses um, prior to COVID, influenza and RSV. Uh, We know in animal models, it also decreases ACE2 
expression, highly important in the um, virus gaining access to the cell through the ACE2 receptor. Um, and then uh, actually in animal studies, my studies has been shown to inhibit SARS-CoV-2 viral replication. So interesting, yet another gout drug is a potential future therapy for patients with COVID, joining, of course, colchicine. And I think that probenicillin and colchicine would not be great therapies for people who are hospitalized and severe, but instead for people who are outpatient and just newly diagnosed. That study needs to be done. This is all animal study data. Um, speaking of animals, a big giant, a gorilla in the field of rheumatology, that's right, Phil Meese, my good buddy Phil Meese. He actually authored a nice study from Corona, that very large registry with, I think, uh, I mean, Corona is like the sign at McDonald's. Every time you look at them, the numbers keep going up and up. Now they no longer publish their numbers because they're well over 50,000 patients. They could be 100,000 patients or 3 billion for all I know, but they're highly effective in getting patient data that's relevant to practice. Phil and colleagues published the uh, results of the Corona Registry um, looking at a cohort, I want to say it was um, 8,000 plus patients, maybe I got that wrong, but it's a large number of patients and they showed in different time eras, starting back in 2004, going to current day, they showed that there's an increasing amount of DMARD and biologic switching and that time on drug has gone down over time. This is a little worrisome because that basically is persistence and adherence. Um, and those are the things we'd like to see in our patients. But this study says we're not seeing so much of it. Now, again, they report the data is the data and up to you to figure that out. It could be that these findings um, reflect eras and the changes in more treatment options. The more treatment options you have, the more drug changes you may make. Also, that if people are, I volunteered the option of treat to target. If doctors are practicing treat to target, maybe that makes them change more. Although I don't think many of us are truly practicing treat to target on a regular basis. We say we do, but in the strictest of sense, we are not. That's another story. Um, interestingly, got a nice comment from Bobo Tanner from Nashville. Bobo talks about his experience um, in their uh, healthcare system where they looked at over 700 patients. Um, and in their healthcare system, they have an integrated specialty pharmacy run by PharmDs. And they have shown in their system that um, by using their own specialty pharmacy, they have better patient adherence to these drugs, better persistence on these drugs, and lower rates of switching and cycling. So that's sort of the flip side to this story. If you look at just what's going on out in the real world, I think Corona accurately reflects what's going on in the real world. Bobo's world, you know, we should all be like Dr. Tanner and the world he lives in. Um, push for it at your center where you work. Uh, an interesting study came out that in the beginning of the week that we talked about systemic sclerosis patients and the need for acute hospitalizations. Um, the, the bottom line I put out was that there was um, uh, a significant minority of patients who undergo acute hospitalizations and there's a mortality associated with that. Thankfully, it's a low number, but it is there, and it's often linked to heart disease and um, scleroderma, uh, systemic cirrhosis-associated lung disease. Uh, and if you look at the reasons for hospitalization, um, infectious disease led the way, 27%, followed by cardiac disease, 16%, followed by digital ulcers and vascular disease, 13%, pulmonary hypertension, 10%, and ILD, 9%. 
Amongst infectious disease, the most common one, 70% pneumonia. And of the ones with pneumonia, 74% had uh, scleroderma-associated ILD. When you looked at those who died, um, the most common reasons were pneumonia, heart failure, cancer, pulmonary hypertension, and ILD. So littered amongst all of this is a lot of lung disease, whether it's pulmonary hypertension or ILD or infectious pneumonia. These are all bad players in systemic cirrhosis patients. Interestingly, when they looked at in this cohort of, um, I want to say it was 70 patients, 57 patients, somewhere in there, um, the multivariate analysis showed that the predictors of acute hospitalization admission were number one, digital ulcers. Number two, LV dysfunction. Digital ulcers are six-fold increased risk. LV dysfunction is seven-fold increased risk. Pretty interesting. So we're going to end with a number of cases from um, back talk or what I'm now going to call cases and questions. I want to um, first highlight a question that I got from a colleague here in Dallas, Dr. Eliko Barbosa, who says, do you have any inside info on the vaccines for COVID-19 and their use during pregnancy? She points out that last week's observational study from the New England Journal may not have had a, a great control group. So um, I do think that patients who are pregnant um, should be encouraged to get the COVID vaccine. And that's just my impression. But the CDC has kind of waffled on that, but come out saying, endorsing what the ACOG, the American Academy of uh, Obstetricians and Gynecologists, had, what they have said. But there's a new statement that just came out just a, a few months ago from um, ACOG and um, maternal, the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, where they basically encourage their members, OBGYNs and, uh, and whatnot, to enthusiastically recommend vaccination to their patients. And why, you say? Certainly there are no studies. As you remember, last week in the podcast, we talked about two studies showing that there's no increased risk of spontaneous abortion, no significant increased risk of spontaneous abortion in pregnant women who have received the COVID-19 vaccines, usually mRNA vaccines. Um, and the reason that they're endorsing it strongly is, number one, um, pregnant women who get COVID do not do well. They actually do quite poorly. Secondly, um, they're... There, this is the things are getting worse in this era of the Delta variant, and they also say that um, um, yet only about 22% of pregnant women have received one or more doses of the COVID 19 vaccines, according to the CDC. So they are firmly on the side of, um, of making sure that the pregnant women, unless there's a contraindication, that they go ahead and get. A, a vaccination. Um, our next back talk um, comes from a Dr. Eve Scopolitis in New Orleans. Hi, this is Eve Scopolitis from New Orleans. I'd like to ask about how to treat a woman who's had a spiral fracture on a bisphosphonate and is now completing her two-year course of teriparatide. What is the next step? Is it advisable to restart, go back on the bisphosphonate, or is there another option available? Thanks, Dr. Scopolitis. Um, I think that's a really good question. Um, and uh, I have my, my initial response was, 
no, don't go back on the bisphosphonate. I mean, the patient got into trouble on bisphosphonate. But um, I don't trust myself on osteoporosis, so I called two of my friends. I called Dr. Catherine Dow, my partner um, who teaches me about osteoporosis, and Dr. Nancy Lane, who's taught me about osteoporosis for many years. Nancy said, um, Dr. Lane um, at UC Davis said, you know, um, you could go back on bisphosphonate. It depends on how many years she's been on it. But really, it depends on where she is right now. So at the end of two years of teriparatide for Teo, you should probably repeat the bone mineral density and see if she's gotten much, much better. If she has, it might be okay to go back to a bisphosphonate. Dr. Dow says if you're going to use a bisphosphonate, she'd go to IV zolandronic acid or reclast. Um, but again, there needs to be um, a good reason to do so and not the many reasons to not do so. I mean, she's, again, having a spiral fracture is sort of not a good idea. The options here, if the patient has sort of held steady on her BMD, then your options are to choose alternative therapies. And the two that came up amongst my consultants were my first choice, denosumab, which seems to be an easy answer for a lot of patients. Um, and if not denosumab, then uh, you could consider um, Evenity or Romosuzumab. Now, the problem with Romosuzumab is that um, that it has a one-year limit and it has a box warning against risk of myocardial infarction and whatnot in patients who are high-risk cardiac patients. And it's got a one-year limit. Um, we know that Forteo's got a two-year limit because of the risk of osteosarcoma. But wait, no. Nancy Lane says that's been removed. That box warning has been removed because long-term studies of patients on Forteo say there really weren't any cases of osteosarcoma in humans taking that. That was seen in rats. So maybe you could continue the Forteo. How long, we don't know. But you could continue it for a while until you make another choice to either choose Prolia or Romosuzumab. But you do have several options to cycle beyond those two. So thank you, Dr. Scopolitis. Another um, call from Dr. Sharp. Are many of you having problems getting tocilizumab? Um, it's, there seems to be a shortage, and if you can get it, where are you getting it? So the tocilizumab shortage is the IV tocilizumab shortage, and of course it's because of its rapid and um, frequent use as therapy in patients who are hospitalized with severe COVID-19 infection. Um, the shortage was um, primarily felt early on um, in Europe and, um, and I believe in Australia, um, and then has somewhat crept into the United States being a shortage, but it seems to be very spotty. Um, a number of people I spoke to this week said that they haven't really had a problem. In places where there has been a problem getting IV tocilizumab, you always have the option of using either sub-Q tocilizumab or changing to um, uh, cerilumab, the other IL-6 inhibitor. Uh, and, and more recently, the um, manufacturer has come up with its statement on that, and that's going to be a link in there. But they uh, updated their, their website to say on September the 3rd 
that they have um, begun to replenish the U.S. supply of Actemra and, and anticipate that that will be in full supply by the end of August. But it's hard to predict what the future use and the future, because it's based on the growth of this fourth surge of COVID. Um, and so they're going to try to keep up with the um, unusual pace that's been uh, driven by the pandemic. Um so, again, I think maybe the answer to your question is to talk to your colleagues about what they're doing and then also to uh, talk to your sales reps to find out what they um, can tell you about the supply being replenished. Our last um, call comes from Munir Ahmad. Hi, Dr. Kush. This is Munir from Springfield, Massachusetts. I have a 40-year-old lady um, who underwent kidney transplant in 2006 for focal segmental glomerulosclerosis secondary to pregnancy. She is uh, maintained on Celsept and Platacept and uh, presents to me with a three-year history of uh, uh, polyarthritis involving small and large joints. She was managed by orthopedics with intermittent steroid injections in various joints over the last three years. Um, how would you manage this patient going forward? Munir, very challenging case. I've seen several of these. You don't find chapters on this sort of thing. Um, and I'm not sure I heard you right. I couldn't make it out. The patient's on mycophenolate and another sept. Was that a bad sept? Anyway, it doesn't, it's not going to change my story, my answer here. Um, you know, tr renal transplant patients can get arthritis. And they can get polyarthritis. Um, the first thing you need to, uh, I want to remind the audience of is um, serologies are wildly inaccurate in renal failure patients and patients uh, who undergone transplant. ANAs, rheumatoid factors, even CCPs abound. Um, and, you know, don't be swayed into thinking this is lupus RA unless they meet otherwise meet criteria for lupus or RA. Similarly, uric acid levels go up and there's a high risk of gout and crystal arthritis in these patients. So at the top of the list, causes of polyarthritis would be gout. Yes, gout, not just oligo or monoarthritis, but these patients do get polyarthritis that can be due to gout. Similarly, they can also get calcium pyrophosphate deposition disease. So joint taps might be important here. Next highest on the list is going to be the risk of infection. Common infection, septic arthritis, but also bizarro opportunistic infections. Anything from MAI to chikungunya to, you know, uh, bacterial species that you don't know how to spell and have never heard of. Um, these happen very frequently in this cohort. They are very immunosuppressed and should be considered as such. They should be tested for hep B and hep C because that happens here as well. Um, and that's like the, the, the main thing. The risk of developing RA or PSA or another well-identified inflammatory polyarthropathy doesn't exist in the literature. Um, there certainly could be complications of steroid therapy or other immunosuppressives that might relate to musculoskeletal, uh, musculoskeletal disease like AVN, etc. But really, crystals and infection and then there is this thing where you don't prove crystals or infection 
and they have a polyarthritis. And there, what I've done in the past is I treat them as if they're a seronegative RA, where I always worry about the, the diagnosis and what's underlying this, but I treat what they have, meaning I'll use the drugs I usually use as long as they're not contraindicated in someone who's had renal transplant and taking the drugs that you mentioned. So I would use other biologics. I would use methotrexate and um, maybe even leflunamide. Um, a lot of talk about use of JAK inhibitors in these renal transplant patients for their transplant that could also help their arthritis. But again, if you're going to treat this as if it's seronegative RA, you have to worry at every visit. What am I missing here? And you have to be liberal in tapping joints where you can get fluid um, to test for infection and or crystals. That's it for this week on the podcast. Hope you enjoyed this. Stay safe, wear your mask, encourage your patients to do so. Listen up. In recent years, it's become increasingly possible to identify higher-risk rheumatoid arthritis patients even at the time of diagnosis. This allows rheumatologists to make more informed treatment decisions based on individual patient profiles. For example, several studies have been published showing that seropositivity for anti-CCP and RF together can influence patient outcomes. The results suggest that serologic status may be used to optimize one's approach. To see these biomarker-driven results and to learn more, please visit rabiomarkers.com.